it's Simon. A big thank you to all of you who continue to support the podcast. Every episode and guest story we do is an absolute pleasure to record. And if these life stories bring just some light into just a few people's lives, then I'm super happy about that. If you are new here and listening for the first time, I hope you will be inspired by the stories of how my guests have turned the tables on adversity. Moving on to this episode, on November the 26th, 2008, my guest, Will Pike, was on holiday in Mumbai with his girlfriend when Islamic terrorists attacked the Taj Mahal Palace Hotel he was staying in. 116 people lost their lives. Then a fit 28-year-old, Will was left paralysed when he fell 60 feet trying to escape. I told my girlfriend I loved her and I... And, I'm, and I, I made the descent. I started climbing down. I basically clambered over the eaves. I put all my weight onto this rope. And within a very short amount of time, probably within 10 feet, I felt the rope untie. And I actually kind of passed out. I had a bit of an out experience, saw myself fall, but I did fall 60 feet. Now at Paraplegic, Will knows what it takes to overcome adversity. But for Will, disability was not an ending. Using his media communication skills, he campaigns for disability rights and inclusion and has become an activist for accessibility. Will passionately believes that unless disabled people are given the same opportunities as everyone else, the negative stigma will remain. In 2016, Will produced and starred in a film to highlight accessibility problems on the high street called Yes I Can, If. Will harnessed the film's success to talk about disability in the mainstream media, appearing on programmes such as Good Morning Britain. In this episode of Turning the Tables, I'm also joined by co-host Sharon Lloyd-Barnes who shared her story of overcoming stage 3 breast cancer in episode 18. Check it out if you haven't heard it yet. Sharon got to know Will through her work on diversity and inclusion and introduced us. And that's how this episode came to be. We talked with Will about the dramatic events of that night in Mumbai, how he has had to adapt to his new circumstances and the challenges it presents, and the work he is now doing to raise awareness of the inclusion needs of people with disability. This is a first for Turning the Tables because we have a co-host, and that co-host is Sharon Lloyd-Barnes, who anyone who's been listening to the podcast will, I hope, remember, um, did a very recent episode And you have very kindly introduced Will Pike, our guest. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited to be talking to him. I mean, we met, trying to think, probably beginning of last year through work. But yeah, incredible story, incredible person. Really looking forward to chatting to him. Welcome to Turning the Tables, Will Pike. It's great to have you on the show. You're a presenter, a speaker, a writer, 
and a disability rights campaigner. And you became a paraplegic in the most extraordinary circumstances of a terror attack in Mumbai. Would you yeah. like to tell us about that? Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, it is a, a, a rather unique and strange um, experience. And you kind of look back and you go, hold on a minute. Is that my life? Did that actually happen to me? Um, but as you intimated there, yeah, in 2008, and I'll just give a like a little bit of preamble for those people who don't know me because I'm not well known by any stretch of the imagination. But I was 28 years old. I'd lived a kind of fairly free and easy life, free from adversity, should I say. And in 2008, me and my partner at the time, when I was 28 years old, we went to India just for a holiday uh, in Goa. And... Um, we had a really relaxing two weeks, kind of one of those hippie paradise places, really. Just everyone's chilled out um, mm. all day long, all evening long, too. And um, we had a flight back via Mumbai. So we thought we'd treat ourselves to a little five-star luxury rather than sort of flounder for interconnecting flights. We gave ourselves an extra day and booked ourselves in to the Taj Palace Hotel in Mumbai, which is kind of one of the most kind of famous hotels right on the bank of the port uh, near the gate to India, I believe. And um, we checked ourselves in. We started, we, we actually popped out, kind of did a little bit of minor shopping, got back to the hotel, started getting ready for dinner. And I heard something that I couldn't put my finger on what it was. My first thought was that it kind of sounded like a car backfiring, but I also knew it wasn't because I'd heard that before and I hadn't heard this before. So I started looking out the window and what was weird was that there wasn't really anyone out there. The streets had sort of emptied and I could actually see someone hiding behind a car and at that point, I just thought that's very odd. And I kind of joined the dots pretty quickly and thought, I reckon that was a gunshot. And then the gunshots just started getting louder and closer to the point that we're like, hold on a minute. <laughs> this is inside the building. And it's a huge, huge building. Um, we were in the old part. And me and my partner, we decided to go towards the um, huge communal staircase just to sort of see if we could make out anything we were th three stories up and we made our way down there and we could sort of see what was essentially gun smoke filling up the lobby there was more bangs there was more gunshots there weren't really any staff around but we we did see a couple and they just sort of suggested we go back to our room so we did and we kind of barricaded ourselves in and basically cut a long story short <laughs> We spent five hours in our hotel room thinking that we were kind of going to get killed. Uh, five terrorists had stormed Mumbai and including our hotel as one of the key targets. Um, over 170 people got killed. They basically roamed around the hotel with AK-47s just shooting people on site. They were knocking on doors and executing people in the rooms um i mean that's really where we thought we were gonna um 
meet our end um, as we could hear single gunshots going off on our floor and they were getting closer. God, that, that five hours must have been absolutely terrifying. It, it was a mixture. It Let was a, alone what's going to happen next. It was a real mixture and we didn't panic. Like I remember getting on the phone to my dad at one point to see if he could give us any information from you know the UK. I mean, that must have been a strange phone call for him to receive. Oh, but it, it was literally the case of like, hi, dad, I'm in a hotel in India. I think there's a terrorist attack going on. And he was really calm. You know, he was just like, OK, leave this with me. Let me make some calls. Got back to me and said, yep, there's something going on. You need to stay where you are type thing. Um, and we did so. And we were very lucky in that no one did break through the door to our room we never left our room because I mean, we didn't know the, the layout of the hotel for a start we didn't know where anything was going on with three stories up there was no immediate exit the windows were bolted closed there was we were very much kind of trapped in this room uh, but we never saw anyone get killed i never saw any gunshots or anything like that we just heard this entire soundscape emerge around us i have seen cctv footage since um, after a documentary I featured in, uh, made by a Dutch filmmaker who captured um, the essence of what took place that night. And they were young guys, 17 or 18, um, constantly on the radio to their handler. And it was very much a sort of, you know, you're acting on the will of God and you're doing this for Allah and all this kind of stuff. Um, I mean, they were extremists from the, I think, Laksha-e-Taiba sect down in Pakistan. Um and we we just were in that sense quite lucky that we never witnessed firsthand visually the the pain and horror that was taking place uh, about five hours in my dad said to, to us listen the building is on fire you sh you need to factor this in because at that point there wasn't any emergency help outside there were no there was no army presence, there was no fire engines, there was no police on the street. It very much felt like we were on our own. So we started tying together like bed sheets, um, curtains, we cut them down, everything that was made of fabric of length so that we could make a homemade rope. We did a little tug of war in the room. And when we could actually see and detect the fire was kind of outside our room, you know, just from that orange glow that you get and all that kind of those those signifiers we were like we need to really act on this now we need to get out of here you know um this is the most pressing danger so we smashed the window tied this homemade rope to a marble table threw it out the window it sort of hung by itself not against the wall because of the eaves of the windowsill they sort of just meant that there was just this straight descent. Um, couldn't even see the floor actually from the window. And it was only when I climbed out onto the eaves that you could really see how high we were. But we were also fearful for things like snipers and any eventuality. We just didn't know what the situation was. So we were like, if we sit on this window still getting fresh air, waiting for fire engine, we could just be picked off. Mm. So I told my girlfriend I loved her and I... And I and I, I made the descent. I started climbing down. I basically clambered over the eaves. I put all my weight onto this rope, rope, and within a very short amount of time, 
probably within 10 feet, I felt the rope untie. My brain did like a million calculations. And I actually kind of passed out. I had a bit of an out-body experience, saw myself fall, but I did fall 60 feet. And my girlfriend thought I was dead. Um, literally, um, someone appeared on a similar sort of height on, on, on an adjacent window from an adjacent room. So I looked down and said, you need to come to my room. Your boyfriend's dead on the floor. Turns out I wasn't dead. And some random passerby saw me fall and managed to flag down an ambulance and get me into it. And because of that, they were also able to find my girlfriend and get hold of a fire engine, which hadn't been there before, and get her out of the room. So there was a chain of events that I like to associate with my actions that mean that she gets out safely. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of like my hero story um, or hero version, should I say. But to be honest with you, at that moment, I had no concept of what was going on. I was largely out of consciousness. I was having flashes of consciousness where I would sort of see an, a bone popping out of my wrist or, you know, was just shouting my girlfriend's name, wondering where she was. And it was only after, I don't know, I, I had this kind of vision of being in a hospital corridor and sort of coming around and seeing her at the end of my bed and knowing that she was safe. And then, boom, I was gone. Um, and I was probably out for about 24 to 48 hours while I was being operated on. I came round in a in a hospital bed, my arms completely wrapped up in plaster and a metal cage sticking out of my pelvis. I had sustained a spinal injury, but I had no real concept of that at the time. I had very limited movement and sensation, but I was in so much pain and on so many drugs that actually everything was impossible to interpret. I had no I just knew that I was broken. I spent basically 10 days in our hospital bed while they figured out how to repatriate me. Um, I don't want to go into details around that because it'll just enable me to get very angry at the British consulate and their in, in, inadequacy, should we say. Um, but my dad came out to help with everything, as well as my partner's mum. And eventually I did get repatriated on a passenger plane, I might add, squeezed in to the back of a, it was the most surreal experience of my life, like literally on a trolley that was placed above seats so that my head was only six inches from the overhead locker. So, you know, like it was so precarious. And I've got this metal case sticking out of me. I've got my arms in plaster. And then at that, at about three hours into the flight, we went through the worst turbulence I've ever experienced in my life. Oh. I 100% thought I was going to get knocked out of this contraption and um, would would be impaled by this cage that was holding my body together. Anyway, <laughs> I didn't die. Uh, made it home, made it back to the UK. I remember flying over the Thames, the sort of, I can't remember where we landed, whether it was Gatwick or Heathrow. I think it was Gatwick. And anyway, the sort of the flight path that we banked over the Thames and it just sort of brought a tear to my eye. And it wasn't until I landed that I felt safe for the first time. And, and then I made it to UCLH hospital um, where they, okay, they weren't ready for me. And I spent fucking 11 hours sat in A&E. I was just like, my dad was by this point, I hadn't slept for 48 hours. I had to tell him to go home because he was losing his mind. Eventually got into a room. And that's where the, the journey of healing sort of began. Yeah. It sort of began. 
I was just going to say, you couldn't really write this other than unless you were writing a script for a, a movie. And I mean, it's got so many components of mm. a movie, hasn't it, really? I mean, I mean, obviously a, a horror movie, but... Um, oh, oh, it has. I mean, and, and, and part of my story has been dramatised already. It's just <laughs> such an amazingly horrendous sequence of events. And, yeah. And almost listening to you as you unpick each part of it, there are so many questions to ask, aren't there, all the way through that you <laughs> yeah. must you must go back over that and ask yourself questions so much about it. Well, yes and no. I think I mean I've I've obviously skimmed over a lot of the details here. I mean that that five hour period, you know, I can pretty much chronologize it by the minute. It still remains a very visceral and potent experience not surprisingly i think i i i i never spent too much time analyzing it or asking why it happened there was one moment when i was in the hospital bed in india probably about three days in so i dusted settled a touch and i was in this um bed um it was quiet part of the day and this Canadian bloke wearing hospital gurney kind of was sort of stumbled into kind of my doorway and was like hey how you doing and I was like uh yeah I've been better and I was like what happened to you he's like oh, I got shot in the ass and I was like oh and I was like oh that must have been tough he's like yeah I was like so were you in a hotel he's like yeah I was in the Oberoi and um he then he then went on to tell me this story of what happened to him and it basically, he was having dinner with one of his best friends and his best friend's daughter. And they were in this main restaurant area of the Oberoi. And he's just very, with this real nice Canadian lilt, telling me this story about how they're having dinner, a really wonderful time, and then bang, two or three gunmen come in. They open fire. He gets shot in the ass, But his friend and his friend's daughter both get killed in front of oh. him. And the way he describes them and how their life is taken, and he refers to them as just beautiful people, mm -hmm. and he left. And then that was when I first started, I, I, I shed my first tear over the whole thing. Up until that point, it had just been this crazy action sequence. But then the way he just describes his friends and the fact that it was his daughter, friend's daughter as well, she was younger, and like... His just simple articulation of them being beautiful people and the way they've been killed, it really struck me that this mm. was just the most tragic event. Mm. And something that I couldn't comprehend was how people could be so violent and towards other people. Mm. I just, I found it, I found that really difficult to comprehend. That was just a really poignant moment where. Yes, me and him had survived, but actually many people hadn't. And again, yeah. I just felt grateful that I hadn't seen that type of horror up front because I think that's the kind of stuff that really scars you, mm. you know. Although um, I was really struck well, when you were saying earlier that, you know, you, you, you had, you'd been spared that, you'd been spared sort of seeing what had happened, but the soundscape yeah. was, was very much, you know, you can still relive that now. And I think often... Having just one specific sense, you know, just having the sound can be just as traumatic. And you know what? Profound. If it had been, if it had been like I could hear screams, 
Yeah. But it wasn't that. It was just like I was hearing ammunition and weaponry and explosions. Yeah. And I had this huge environment. And we did, while we were in the room, we, we asked ourselves, what would MacGyver do? Yeah. What would Bruce Willis do? Like, like because it felt like an action movie. Yeah. And suddenly you're like, okay, we're in a hotel room. There's, there's terrorists out there. The building's on fire. We don't know the layout. Okay. Do we lock the door? Yes. But then they'll know we're in here. Okay. We unlock it. No, because then they can get in. Okay. We lock the door. All right. Do we turn on the TV, see if there's news? No, because then they might know that we're in the room. Right. Are there any panels that we can take away from the bathroom? Can we get in the walls? Can we kind of go through the air vent duct? No. The walls are sealed. Um, can we open the window? No. They're sealed. So you start kind of going through this kind of mental checklist of all the kind of films you've seen and all the techniques. And yeah. What would Bruce do? Yeah. And it's like, you know, in some ways I do feel like I failed. Kind of like this was the test of my boyhood, you know. I you know, built many tree houses in my time. I'm lucky that I've got friends in the countryside. I've climbed many trees. We've done lots of rope swinging. Here was my chance to put all this thing into practice. And unfortunately, I didn't go to Boy Scouts. I didn't learn knots. And it turns out a double granny knot isn't enough to put your weight on when you're, you know, scaling a 60-foot building. So I, it's weird. Like, I think I've almost got this experience of it where I was removed from the tragedy of it during the moment and it's only in hindsight and in the aftermath that i can piece it together and go wow i was part of something horrendous um, and i survived it um and i'm not the author of my misfortune um as a solicitor once put it to me yes you know we made the rope but i was not i did not put myself in this situation so you know that's how i've kind of ratified it on my terms well it takes tremendous courage to uh, even attempt to to sort of climb down some towels i mean you know in the best possible way i mean that that act was incredibly courageous yeah you, and, but it was it was like needs must isn't it like it, it's strange i've never been faced with that type of binary before i know what risks are i know what dangers are about i mean I'm not stupid. I'm not foolhardy to the extreme. So, but for it to be such a simple decision, it was like, all right, we've made the rope. I'll go. I love you. Um, see you on the other side type thing. And yeah, that was your logical, your logical process. Yeah. Wasn't it? We've done the tug of war. We've made the rope. All right. It's 60 feet. If I can get down 30 feet, I could jump that final 15 feet, you know, I don't know. Um, let's see how this goes. Um, of course, I would do things differently if I had the opportunity, but also we survived. <laughs> like, yeah. it's kind of weird. Like, all right, if we decide not to use that rope method, do we get spotted by the ambulance? Do we get spotted by the fire engine? Does the fire encroach upon our room? Do terrorists, are they still lurking? Who knows? The point is, in this particular universe, with this particular outcome, I'm still here talking about it. You know, if you'd asked me prior to this whole thing, if you survive a terrorist attack but you're paraplegic, would you do it? Type of thing. You know, like, like would you rather questions? Could you, would you rather? I, I would have no idea what the life of a paraplegic meant because not walking is the tip of the iceberg. So, 
to come to terms with everything that I've had to as from as a disabled person actually casts a shadow over me as a terror attack victim. And I re- I'd recently changed a little quote on my website, which was like, um, surviving a terror attack victim made me out to be some sort of hero. And I've changed the second part to, but normalizing disability is a bigger challenge. And it, it, it kind of is because, because actually what I did in the moment in India, in Mumbai, was like responded to a set of choices that were put upon me. And you either do A or you do B. And okay, we do B. It's, it's you know, there was no gray area. There was no interpretation. But what I've found since in the 12-ish years that I've now been living with a disability is that so much of what comes down to what you tolerate as a disabled person is, is, is on you. And how much you put up with is comes down to your level of patience or or how much energy you have to resolve an issue. Just that transition from the accident to this campaigning and this realisation about the reality for people with disability. Yeah. How did that how did that transition happen? I mean, what was your me- mental state over that period of time? How did that evolve? It's a good question in a way. I think it kind of it organically is the short answer um, and over time. And I think in between the events that have got me in this position where I'm on a podcast talking to you are, you know, mass periods of time where nothing happens, punctuated by actions of creativity and um, doing that push me forward or push me into a different zone. Firstly, I think in terms of coming to terms with my disability, that didn't start until I was at Stanmore, the spinal injury unit. And it was two months into being injured that I was given my full prognosis. And that was the emotional ground zero. That was when I found out that I was paraplegic, that my injury is classed as complete. A complete injury in terms of spinal injury means that it's a closed circuit. That's what you've got. Nothing's going to get better. You can learn to use what you do have, but you're not going to get actually improved neuropathy or motor function. Okay, ground zero. Because up until that moment, I was living in a deluded bubble of ignorance that this is just going to be some after-dinner talk where I you know, reminisce about you know, being immobile for a bit of time. But actually, having that matter-of-factly described to me that this is now for life was huge and it reduced me you know right down to zero and so that's where you know you start building up from well that's what i was going to ask you about you know was it a sort of perceptible choice where you thought i'm just not going to think negatively anymore or or did it just happen kind of you know almost by osmosis as in your sort of recovery emotionally and physically uh, a bit of both, but I think you have to be conscious. I think I think the thing is your mind can play tricks on you, and you and and the downward spiral is a spiral. It's like a roller coaster. So it's like um, what are those uh, those? It's like a helter skelter. So you can't you can't really. It's not your fault necessarily that your your mind is taking you to these places, but you can do something about it. You and if you know what's going on. 
how how I'm just interested to understand what have been your coping strategies i mean how have you avoided just feeling tremendous resentment resentment towards my situation well what has happened to you you know your situation and how do you keep how have you managed to keep a positive mindset i tell you there are there's one really important aspect to my um rehabilitation or process and that is that I after much campaigning and legal work was able to secure um, a couple of payments and compensation packages and I don't think I could be where I am now both in terms of physically or emotionally without the financial support that we managed to achieve, and I say we, me and my dad, who was who was instrumental in in that campaigning, and I've noticed it um, in my peer support work, speaking to spinally injured people who are going through it. Um, if you don't have financial support, disability looks like a very different animal. It's hard. It's really hard. And I'm very lucky um, in that um, I grew up in a very stable home. My dad worked hard in advertising. We had a really nice three-story house in near Crouch End. Um, we never went wanting or sort of hungry, you know, and we weren't like crazy affluent or anything, but we did all right. I, it was that. It was comfortable. Bring it back to the experience you've had, this incredible life-changing event and the experience you've had coping with that over the last 12 years or so what would you say to other people who have challenges in their life not necessarily the same as your own but what would you say to them about how to cope in those situations I'm almost kind of imagining what I'd say to myself if I was at the beginning of my journey again, um, I think it gets better. Just three words, it gets better. I think there are, as I said, I do this peer supporting because I speak to new injured people and at the start, it's overwhelming and you can't really comprehend everything that's happening or all your fears and anxieties but fundamentally over time things get better is that because of the mental adjustment you you you, you go through yeah but I, I i think it's everything it's, it's it's going back to that thing time is the healer and it's everything that you like i i don't understand how emotions work per se but i I've been heartbroken a number of times in my life, like, you know, where I remember when I was like 16 years old, breaking up with my first girlfriend. We've been going out for six weeks, six months. I cried for a week at the age of 60. Oh, what a wuss, you know, like, but like blubbering, 
blubbering away like all my f- love faxes that I'd written to her kind of all my all my teenage poetry up in smoke you know how has this relationship ended at 16 I, I look at 16 year olds now and I think oh my god that's gross like what are you what I don't even want to think about what they're doing you know like but what is my emotional capacity at 16 you know but the thing is I'm still essentially the same person I'm still I can still be quite emotional um and I think I, I don't know how you learn to cultivate or learn how to deal with your emotions in the moment because paradoxically you can't you can't recreate that you know you can only experience it when it's happening um, and objective advice during an emotional time sometimes feels like the most inane information of to hand you know um, I think when you're processing stuff. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I've got a good grounding. I'm, I'm able to critically think. I'm able to assess a situation. I'm able to think things through and all these things. But that doesn't mean shit when you're actually going through it. You know, um, rationality is out the window. And I guess it's a bit like a tidal wave, you know, of emotions. And you can't, you, you can't really swim your way out of it. You've just got to hope that once the wave has gone, you're kind of you're kind of upright and you, your head's not in the sand and you're still breathing. You know, you've been spun this way and that like a tumble dryer. And okay, oh, all right, but we're still here. All right, that happened. Um, and now, what do we do? Let's survey the wreckage, which is you. <laughs> you know. But you said earlier as well that you know you, you hit rock bottom and, and were down there. Yeah. But but then but then you were open and I that really resonated with me and I think how important do you think that is in terms of you know anyone's recovery from any challenge or adverse you know adverse situation just to almost flip your thinking so that you're open to possibility. Yeah, I think I mean like that that was such a difficult period. Um, but I think one of the things that helped me was actually the perspective that I got from being around other people that were going through something similar. Um, and I'm still good friends with a couple of guys I was in hospital with. One of, one of which is um, a guy called Dave Holmes, who was the stunt double on every single Harry Potter film for Daniel Radcliffe. And his life was absolutely the trajectory would have been incredible. Like Hollywood stuntman, hands down. Um, he's a little guy from Essex, South End. Oh, Will, you know, talks like that. Um, <laughs> but he's an absolute, you know, he's a diamond geezer. And um, but in the second last Harry Potter film, he was involved in a wire accident. Um, it wasn't his fault, but he got over rotated and his head crushed down to his chest and he broke his neck. And he was um, opposite me. Um, for like you know three months on in this in this bay and but his level of injury was higher so he's he's tetraplegic he had limited movement on his arms and his 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 hands um it's a completely different le- type of spinal injury um whereas i live a fully independent life by myself you know in a flat without any external care he will need a third party care person for the rest of his life. Uh, that's a very different scenario. What's more, his entire life had been governed by his physical prowess. He was 
his physical body. I'd seen his showery, who was like a bouncy board. He could have been a professional gymnast. Unbelievable skills. Unbelievable. And yeah, here he was, now doubly disabled than I was. Like, but the way in which he managed his care, his rehabilitation, he owned his injury. Like he managed the people around him. He he was not a passive person in any stretch and every morning i'd get up wake up opposite him you know you know just persevering to get himself out of bed get himself into the wheelchair and you'd be like that's that's the dose of perspective i needed you know and it's not about going oh there's always someone worse off it's about anchoring your situation in relation to reality and i think if you don't have that connection and the ability to see outside of yourself, then you will get bogged down in the minutiae of your individual experience. And that will become, again, a bit of a helter-skelter ride in which you are the centre of your universe and nothing else. And your misery will end up defining it and it will become all-encompassing. And I, I can't see how that's a good way to be. Like, no. you're entitled to be there by all means. Like, wallow in despair as much as you want, mate. I mean, I've done it. He did it. We all cried our eyes out. But we all have the ability to just go, okay, actually, there's something worse going on. There, there was something worse for, for each of the other guys in my bay. Like there was the guy, Ollie Hemsley, who had been attacked for being gay and had been stabbed in the heart. There was a guy next to me called Stacy who basically never got visited by his family or friends. I, we had family there every single day. We, we had friends there every day. You suddenly realize the currency and the value of love. Like, I mean, I talked about how important it is to have financial stability. It's incredibly important to have um, an emotional one as well. And that comes from the, the, the love of other people. And I'm very grateful for my family, for my friends. They never, I never once felt alone. So the resources that I needed to help me get through that struggle were provided without me even to ask. I was going to say, well, what's what's next for you? Well, what's more, what, what I suppose the question is, what what's your ambition? What do you want to to do going forward? It's it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, for me, it changes a lot. I, my my short answer is, I want to try and affect more change. I'm still trying to, I feel, kind of live up to self-proclaimed titles. You know, actually none of that is really necessary um my big goal is just to try and normalize disability in whatever way i can um whether that's through creative ventures whether that's through um doing more news report reportage stuff um i don't know i mean i just need to keep chipping away and make good connections and say yes to stuff that's that's fundamentally what i need to keep doing absolutely it, it's it's flipping it from not being a box ticking exercise which is for yeah. me that's what diversity equals and it should be about inclusivity you know just what 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 does it look like for everything for everyone to film for everyone to have access to yeah. that's that's inclusivity isn't it um and i think that's that's if we're if we've now got this amazing opportunity to build back better in whatever part of society that is if it's business or just in our own communities um i think we start from the ground up just looking at you know, in every sense of the word, what, how can we be inclusive? I think I, one of the great ways I had to find it, and I always get it wrong when I try and sort of repeat it, is like diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. 
and it and it and it's just it's kind of like you know nobody just wants to sit on the edge kind of looking in i want to be there i want to take part well that's been absolutely brilliant thank you so much for for doing that will that's my pleasure i really enjoyed it you've shed a lot of light i think on on obviously what was a incredibly difficult experience for you but you're you're doing a huge amount of very good work as a result of it so congratulations to you well it's nice when you sort of, when it all gets kind of bite-sized into a podcast it feels like it and then you kind of go <laughs> right now what am i doing today yeah oh, you're the rea- reality kicks in doesn't it get the Sainsbury's delivery sorted yeah yeah Yeah, thanks Will and thank you Sharon for being the co-host on this episode it is easy to underestimate the enormous courage Will has shown to come through such a significant event and hard to imagine how terrifying it must have been on that night in Mumbai But of course, that was just the beginning. As with my guest Henry Fraser in episode 23, Will has had to deal with a complete change in his life circumstances. Yet he's not wallowed in self-pity. His support of other people with disability and his commitment to campaigning for businesses to recognise the importance of accessibility for people with disability is inspiring. I would really encourage you to watch Will's film, which you can find on YouTube. Link in the show notes. You can find Will at willpike.co.uk and on Twitter at pixelatedpike. Until next time, go safely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning the Tables. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.